Welcome to Creative Innovators with Gigi Johnson. I'm excited today to share Akira Nakano's interesting journey path with you. He has built from scratch the Los Angeles Inception Orchestra, which is not quite what it sounds like, or maybe it totally is. He has a background in anything from professional musicianship and longtime training to working for TRW. And from a lot of this, he brought together a unique new platform for young people to learn from professional composers how to become professional composers. And he adds a little bit of tech magic in the top of it. So enjoy this conversation with Akira. And he's going to be having some interesting events coming up if you're listening to this during 2020 in the fall. So we'll have that in the show notes, but enjoy this conversation with Akira. Can you talk about what what was the inception of this idea? Yes, of course. So I originally formed a nonprofit as a, I'm a classical pianist and I was going to do a concert and it's an easier way to raise money. And of course we had our first board meeting after we got our nonprofit status and music education came up immediately. And when it becomes not about you, it becomes important. And we went down and asked, what should we be doing uh, LA has so many good nonprofit organizations that do music, but they all teach instruments. And so in our research, we found that um, many of them are starting to graduate kids successfully to college, but they're behind in composition and music theory. So there was an open lane for us to go down. And I love composition and creativity. And it's just, it's, it's become amazing. Akira, who's we? You've said we about four times so far. Sorry. So we is my, my board started out. And what we do now is we hire, we hire professional musicians who come in every week. We've gone weekly. Uh, so these are amazing top talents who mentor our kids on how to write for different instruments. We're going through every instrument of the orchestra right now, one by one. And they teach them how to play traditionally and non-traditionally and then we have really adapted to this virtual setting where we get the kids in breakout rooms and the mentors rotate through and play all their music and make suggestions. And so that's what we're doing. And we've been finding some real good success in this virtual environment. So I'm going to back you up as to the origin of you as fabulous musician. When did you start playing? So I started playing at five years old. I play classical piano. And of course, when you start at five, everyone tells you it's too late. Um, I went through, (laughs) I went through the, uh, the Colburn school. Uh, I was at the Colburn school for my entire childhood. And so for people who don't know, that is a fairly famous music school in downtown Los Angeles. Yes, but when I went down there, when I went there, it was actually by USC. Um, And so um, my mom drove me, we lived in Silver Lake, and my mom drove me up and down Hoover, which is a pretty well-known street in LA. And she hates it so much. She said that if she dies and goes to hell, she's going to be driving up and down Hoover for her stay there. Now, were your parents musicians? Why did they suddenly think, 
our son is going to be a fabulous pianist at age five. My parents are not musicians. I, I think it's just a thing to do um, to put your kid in music. Um, they were very supportive of a, of, of a strict classical piano career. Um, and I mean, they put me through everything at Colburn, which is amazing, you know, music theory, ensembles. Uh, I was in two youth orchestras on Saturdays. And of course my mom drove me everywhere and, uh, was very, I'm very grateful now as an adult that she did that. Is your mom still around? My mom is still around. Um, she is lovely, a little bit of a tiger mom back as a, as a kid. Sorry, mom. And, um, but I think that was, I, in this weird way, I think that was important into how I became, uh, just, you know, the work ethic kind of came from my mom. The one thing that I, I think happened was that there was no creativity or composition in that point. I mean, I wrote songs. I actually was the winner of the first annual Herbert Zipper award in composition, but there was, there was really no real creativity at that point. And I think that's how I latched onto this going forward. So you were a, a youth in a youth program doing music in, out, sideways, through your blood, through your bones. And you then became a pianist. Yeah. So I was a really successful, um, classical pianist. I got into UCLA uh, on a full ride piano performance scholarship. And I did leave the major after six weeks. But in leaving, I, I won the uh, piano concerto competition there. And, uh, and the prize was to play with the orchestra in June. And so of course, by the time I went back there for rehearsals, nobody knew who I was. <laughs> Who's this kid here showing up to play? What UCLA offered, so my mom was very supportive. My parents were supportive, and they sent me um, through the UCLA extension while I was going to while I was chasing my GE at that point. And um, they have this uh, film composition program through the UCLA extension, which was really amazing. And where I think a lot of what we are doing at the LA Inception Orchestra um, came from, because it was all experiential. Then you have one book that was written by a guy named Don Ray who used to score Hawaii Five-0 in orchestrations. It's this tiny, thin book. And there were that, that was it for your entire, you know, I think it was five semesters of programming. And it was so amazing. You got to, you got to work with individual instruments of the orchestra. They'd play your stuff in the studio. And then it just, it went on, you know, there was a basic, there was orchestration, there was instrumentation, there was scoring to picture. It was the best program ever. So six weeks after your parents are patient with you getting into UCLA, you walk out. Yes, I was. Yes, I did. I mean, I, I needed to do something else for a little while. Um, okay. I think I had a very intensive music past, but it was it was great. And I, I found this this extension program and then I got into film school at UCLA and I graduated with a, a BA in film and television production. Cool. And that was when? 1994 is when I graduated. 1994. So you have a wonderful UCLA film and television degree under your belt. And I say that with complete charm as someone who has a USC film and television degree under my belt. And you then went into 
So I was a video editor for 12 and a half years. I got a job right out of high school. My dad worked at a company called TRW, which is a space and electronics firm, um, not the credit bureau. And we made <laughs> marketing videos about space and space and defense, which was fascinating. And that um, went right along with my film school. I would go down and do my film projects in the edit bay at TRW. But it was after college, and we had a director named Justin Lin in my film class who did things properly and you know got an internship and went on to direct many great features. I stayed at my job um, doing commercial marketing videos, and I developed this love of space. Uh, it was really... It was really fantastic. I was able to be promoted and work my way up. Uh, I started directing live events, you know, so I got this great, great experience there. Um, and I really do feel like I was born too late because I, I, you know, I wish I'd been around during like the Apollo missions. Well, it's almost time again, right? As we have new missions coming from new companies. And for those of you who are listening to the podcast, you'll you'll hear some resonating elements, right? So uh, we've had stories of people who started out with music in commercial trade videos and getting started that way, part of Jack Conte's story. And right. Sasha's story actually is coming from the different direction and now ending up in space and working on VR and AR for space and Mars. So we've got some interesting echoes coming back again then. You were at TRW and a lot of people, a lot of people from my film school class ended up doing uh, trade videos, commercial videos as a big chunk of their lives. And we tend to forget that's part of the journey at times. It absolutely is. Yeah. And you learn a lot. No, right? I mean, you, you, you get a lot of volume of work under your belt. Well, it was so amazing because you, you get, uh, I mean, who, who really gets a job and it's high paying. I ended up, you know, once I graduated from UCLA, I got a good significant pay bump. And then, you know, got to use the facilities, got to use the equipment to go make little indie films, um, which was really amazing, aside from doing my job, um, where you also just learn how to edit. And it's a lovely skill to have. Um, and then as you, as I got further along to be able to direct and produce live events, you know, for a Fortune 500 company with all the VPs, is great training to be able to put together events later in life. So that was also a fantastic experience. So when you left TRW, where did that journey take you? After leaving TRW, I wrote and produced my first play. I think I'd always had this thing of wanting to do something in theater, but had no experience. So I wrote this play called A Concerto for Claire, um, which called back my early piano careers because it was about two pianists and a dancer uh, who Claire meets in college. And we put it on at the Colburn School. Now they were downtown. So, you know, just nice callbacks. Um, and that was really my first thing out of college. And that was really such an amazing experience. I think anybody who's done theater knows that that's probably the most incredible creative experience you could have with so many colleagues and, um, you know, just having lots of time to rehearse and rewrite. Uh, so I love that. So, so far we've got film editing. We have professional pianist. We've got uh, film school. We have creating a play and that takes us up to when? Um, that takes us up to 2002. 2002. So, so what then is your next adventure? 
Well, I was in indie film for a little while when we were trying to get some stuff done. Um, the next big thing that I really love to talk about is all the way up to 2009, where um, I was hired um, by the Lodestone Theater Ensemble as the musical director for a play called Closer Than Ever, which I had seen in college. And I had really always wanted to do it as a pianist. And now, remember, I'd taken a long break from playing um, and this show by Maltby and Shire originally has a pianist, a bass player, and four singers um, on stage. It is a trunk musical, so there's no story. It's a bunch of songs strung together that have the arc of relationships. It's a very, very beautiful piece. Um, but this theater company where I knew people, they were doing it. And so I kind of forced my way in. By falsely posting, not falsely, I posted a video uh, from <laughs> myself playing in high school saying, I want to do this show. Um, but of course, I hadn't really been practicing right at all. So I had to get myself together to play this really complex um, piece of, of theater, which I loved. Um, you know, and it, it was it was an amazing experience. Of, of course, my wrists were like, you know, bandaged every day because I just was not in playing shape, but I got myself there and I really am thankful to, um, you know, the director, Chil Kong and his wife, Aaron Quill, who was in the original cast of Avenue Q. Um, and they were just so amazing. And that really brought my love of music and performing with other people back. So you were then inspired? I was absolutely inspired. I, I really, that was my first step of coming back to the piano after a long break. Um, I realized, of course, that I'd had a high school education, basically, in in classical performance because I had stopped playing, essentially, except for things I kind of wanted to, but that's not serious piano. So I worked my way back. I um, called up my piano teacher and also uh, my brilliant accompanist and therapist, and now he's the chairman of our, our board for the Inception Orchestra. Um, his name is Michael Suchel, and he really was so gracious in helping me, and both he and my piano teacher, Hiwan Kwan, um, were amazing in just helping me back and really working with me every week. And I mean, I basically had like four years of, uh, four years of private education to rehabilitate my um, piano career. So what then took you from this round trip experience from piano back to piano to then with some of these great cohorts in crime to start your current endeavor? What was the spur that made you go, this is time to move in a new direction? What was really interesting was that I think it was on my 44th birthday and I was working a job. I worked a day job while I was doing my piano stuff um, with a boss who was super successful. And um, so he took me out for my birthday and um, he he was going to hit his retirement age at the same time I was going to hit 50. And so I asked him, I was like, what do you want to be doing? Um, what do you want to accomplish in these next series of years? And he's like, I want to form an organization and be working for myself and doing something that is great for the community artistically that's, I think, what I want to do. And so it was such an important conversation because it put me on this, I need to figure this out. Um, and here we are like five years later, I'm not quite 50 yet, but on our way. Creating a nonprofit, I have created two. And I 
learned a lot the first time that saved me a lot of effort the second time. How did you decide to launch a nonprofit and who helped you through the Byzantine decisions on starting a nonprofit? Well, so I think we were really smart when we decided to form the nonprofit and we hired a lawyer to kick us off. They are um, they're out of San Diego. All they do is nonprofit formation and advisement afterwards. That was that was a really smart decision for us because that they filed everything and they came up with our first set of bylaws and article, you know, so everything kind of got handled um, in that regard. We had a name change like right after we filed papers, so that put us off. But what was really cool is after waiting about half a year, like we got our nonprofit status on my birthday in 2017, yeah. which was a great birthday present. You know, we had a lot of meetings around what we were going to do as a program. And the other thing that I did was once we started uh, programming, I went to work for an organization called LEAP, Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics, largely to figure out what a successful nonprofit uh, how they operated. And I worked with them for just over a year. It was a really great education. And I, I have to thank my colleague, uh, Nancy Yap, who also just left to become the executive, the executive director of another organization called Cause. But I learned so much from her, just the language of nonprofit and how things are done. And I think that part of it is really great. And I, I've since moved on to a nonprofit foundation, uh, the Fox Family Foundation, and just being on that foundation side, the giving side, I've learned like so many more things, like all my strategies of raising money were completely wrong, you know, and that part of it has been just a brilliant <laughs> education. <laughs> Both. <laughs> okay. So that's your day job? Yes, it is. The Fox Family Foundation. So, because a lot of times we tend to forget that everybody has different mixes over time on what they're doing, both for money and for love, and sometimes for both. So, so I know that you and I talked when you originally started the Fox Family Foundation and how happy you were to be starting there. Yes, it's really, it's been great. My boss is, is fantastic. Um, they support the organizations which help the blind and visually impaired. Um, but it's really just this wealth of knowledge um, that I have been learning from them and the people I've been meeting who have been so generous with their time and advice, um, which I think really helps, you know, Working for both Leap and and FFF, I think they really have just, you know, helped educate me as, you know, I, like you said, I'm building a nonprofit for the for the first time. And I think that's been really important. But I also love that I've been able to that we've been able to accomplish programming at the same time as as working with with these jobs. What was it the first year and what is it now in what, for lack of a better term, I will call the COVID shift. Originally, you know, we had a year and a half of meetings. And finally, I said, we need to just do something. So we're, we, the first thing we did was just do a pilot program where we reached out. We paired with a school, the Ramon Cortinas School over here in downtown L.A. They're a visual and performing arts school. And we, they, they, we brought some kids in and we one-on-one -on -one mentored them. It was a really nice little short pilot program where they came in with their songs, got some mentoring on their songs, went away for two weeks and came back. And then we added um, Tommy Farragher um, to mentor them on top with our other mentors who were mentoring them. And Tommy is like Celine Dion, Josh Groban's producer, gave some really great comments. 
thing that we did smartly was I told everybody, I told our board, I'm emptying the accounts and I'm going to film it so that we had some footage because I think we were walking around in meetings and everyone says, wow, what a fabulous idea you have. What have you done? And the, the answer was nothing at that point. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden we had footage to show. And I mean, you know, pictures work a thousand words, right? That was a really good way and a smart way for us to uh, kick off. Then what happened was originally the concept was, and what we're doing now, was to walk our kids individually through every instrument of the orchestra and have them write for full orchestra. But after this pilot program, we realized that they weren't ready. You know, so we needed to do another program, which we did last year from March to September, which was fabulous. And it was, it was you know, a lot of similar concept, not as many instruments. We did some world instruments like June Kudamoto came in and did the Koto. But we did some basic strings, violin, cello, harp, percussion. We went to Cowperk and, and Ben Phelps pulled every percussion instrument off the wall and played it for them. And then we did, we performed their original concert, their works in concert with all the mentors coming back. And it was a pretty amazing gig to have them be in the studio on the first and third Saturday. And then we would alternate and we would, you know, privately mentor them virtually on the second and fourth week so that someone was following someone. One mentor was carrying their composition all the way through. So this was still with Ramon Cortina's school? Yes. So, I mean... Um, so two of the students were from Ramon Cortinas, uh, stayed with us, and then we found other, other kids uh, elsewhere. And so that was pretty amazing. This year, we had a, a full expansion. We decided to come back in March. COVID, literally, the shutdown happened literally the week we kicked off. It was something that we were actually pretty prepared for in this weird way because we've been doing virtual all last year, one-on-one. We've built our cohort. We have 10 composers, which is, is amazing. And um, I think virtual helped us out in this in this way because you all of a sudden have kids who can get to know each other just in the safety of a screen, especially because we started to have some younger kids. Our kids range now from age 11 to 18, and they like screens, you know, so... <laughs> The or safety. They're, they're screen comfortable, right? So yes. that living in front of a screen and having a screen as the window is normal for them. It doesn't feel intrusive. Oh, you know, absolutely. And I think we kicked off this way, really expecting to get back into the studio in a couple months. Of course, that was completely wrong. Um, so we've we've had to adapt to that. And I think the only thing that we were really missing from being live is that the kids last year got like half an hour to improv with, you know, these professionals. So you could really say, Hey, I got to play with, you know, June Kudamoto on the Koto or whatever. And now we had to adapt to that. And I think we've done it really well by making good use of the breakout rooms so that the kids actually, you're living in zoom. We are living in zoom. And so we have an, um, we have a mentor come in who has whatever the instrumentalist is of the week. We are right now in the middle of woodwinds. So like Jonathan Sactalon came in and introduced his clarinet last week, gave a great lecture and demonstration. And then the kids break out into rooms and write specifically for the clarinet. And Jonathan rotates. So there are four breakout rooms. And then Jonathan rotated through each room, giving them comments and feedback uh, how to expand the narrative of their composition, if they're writing out of range, if they're writing for, you know, it's it's actually fantastic. 
And then in the last part of the session, then any kid who's been composing, they play their piece via note performer, Sibelius. It's a software. And then um, the mentor of the week gets to comment on their pieces. I'm going to stop you for a second just for because uh, I'm I'm thinking of who's listening to this. And so it, it could be a parent who's going, oh, my gosh, how do I get my kid in this program? Or another music creator who is saying, how could I teach in a program like this? So maybe I'd love to stop to kind of say a kid walks in the door or now a virtual door and finds you how. I mean, we are still accepting new kids. Of course, we'd love to expand. I think you can find us via our website. And, you know, we have interviews with with kids who are interested, young composers. I think we put the restriction on that they have to read music. We don't teach that. So they're walking in. They've been a creator. They're, they historically have had to live in the Los Angeles area to be able to come physically. That's not a requirement anymore? No, we have one kid from Austin, Texas now who joins us every week and is super successful. And so there's how many kids in the program now? Right now there's 10. 10. And they and they and it's weekly while they're in school and doing other adventures and doing other things. Yes, so we meet on Saturday mornings from 10 to 1 Pacific time uh every week. We we started going weekly after about after about five sessions in, and it's been super successful. Uh, we have uh, the regular session with the regular mentors, and then on what we call the point five um, sessions, we do other things like music theory or a composition immersive where they just write or film scoring. The other thing I will tell you, I want to talk about my my new team that has come in as well, but they taught Beats and DAW on Soundtrap a couple of weeks ago, which is really some, you know, really cool because of course electronic music is also coming in and that combination of how you can write an electronic thing with a live orchestra is something that is relevant today. We're also making sure that we talk about music careers in the industry and, and other things, you know, just so that kids know that they, there are things they can do in music, even if they may not want to be a composer at the end of the day. So you have Wonderful top-end composers that I'm assuming you are paying. And I say this because a lot of people assume something like this works because, of course, everyone contributes their time. It's something that always ticks me off is that it's like, well, no, you actually, you know, that th- there's a combination or people should be paid in a nonprofit. It's not just, hi, we're all kumbaya and we're all just putting in our time and life is good. But I'm assuming that, that the way this works is that you're you're fueling the lives of people who are putting their work into this. Well, let me just say things started to change for us a little bit team-wise in July. And so firstly, the main mentors, they are paid. We have a contract with the AFM. Um, but some of them, you know, of course, all musicians are mostly out of work. So of course, they need a salary. Some have been very generous and supportive of the program and have donated their salary back. Um, what started to happen in July, which was fantastic, is I got reached out to by a couple of recent graduates from the Berkeley School of Music. And then your colleague, Dr. Frank Huser, also recommended two people, recent graduates from the UCLA um, School of Music. All of a sudden, I had four people who joined the leadership team to help mentor kids because they were excited about the mission. Um, mm-hmm. So 
now I had staff. We traded high titles for volunteer time. Right now, of course, the goal is for us all to be paid, including me, at some point. So that part of it, you know, was amazing because now I have a panel behind the main mentor. So the main mentor gives a comment and then all of them pop up and say, hey, there's this and this that, that they can add. And it's great. The other big thing that happened for us was that one of the mentors was Karen Elaine, who was one of the top viola calls in Hollywood. And I'd done a concert with her back in like 2013 and we kept in touch um, just by Facebook. And so she came in and I booked her as the viola mentor. She had such a great time that the next thing you know, she says, I need to be involved in this. What do I do? She wants to give master classes and suddenly she's our senior vice president. Karen has now opened her Rolodex to everybody. So all of a sudden we have these amazing musicians. I mean, ours, ours were great anyway, but I mean, just phenomenal musicians who are now lining up to work with the kids just on Karen's call. I think everybody has a Karen Elaine story when they <laughs> talk to you and it's all about like how, how generous and creative and passionate she is. And that is surely the case. She encourages our composers so much. And then the Berkeley graduates also served on the board of ASMAC, the American Society of Music Arrangers and Composers. And so we had a meeting with them actually last Friday. I thought it was just going to be one board member. And all of a sudden it was basically, I think it was like 10 board members got on the call, uh, on the Zoom call. And we now have partnership with them, uh, which just gives access to all these, you know, professional, these professional musicians who are so so amazing and arrangers who are just like, I'm just all of a sudden going like this program just, just expanded, you know, out of, out of nowhere. It's so amazing. Is it that you can scale on your own? Do you need partners? Do you need other cities? What becomes the, the goal and challenges of taking this great thing that you've developed an expanded pilot on to now take this on the digital road? Well, I think we are in a really good position right now to expand. We did have a great offer from an organization called Big Picture Learning, which I've been working with through my day job on just something else. But they are a, they have this curriculum, which I like to compare our organization against, which is great because they're recognized nationally. And so it's this thing where they mentor with professionals just in our format as well. So it's nice to line those up. They made a great offer to us to, you know, to teach. It was so last minute that we had to say, could we just wait for a year? Um, but of course, that part of it's great. Now with this partnership with ASMAC, we have a bunch of other people who are willing to help donate their time. So all of a sudden we can we can open the doors and expand because we have the personnel who can help us. Now, not meaning to throw anyone conceptually under the bus, but but why? Why has composition not been richly embraced in programs like this? Because I would think, and people who know me know I've been pretty vocal about this, I would think that being having kids writing and creating their own music that applies to their own worlds and the way they see it and instruments and current music, et cetera, would be richly attractive. What, what has... Why is this as unique as it seems to be? 
I think in general, when you're a music educator, I think you have to, especially in underserved communities, you, you have a lot of kids to do. And I think sometimes, and I, I know some school districts with no disrespect to them have kind of clamped down on budgets. A lot of it's that. So what do you teach? You have to teach them something that is, that is more tangible. If you see a kid playing a violin, all of a sudden, you know, hey, I've taught them to play, you know, twinkle, twinkle on a violin, and that's progress. How do you in a bunch, you know, in a handful, in a, a large school, measure success mm-hmm. with composition? It's hard. So the thing that is really amazing about our kids, they are, they're talented. They are, they are so great and they're so eager to learn. I mean, until one kid took a day off, we had 100% attendance, you know, and we still have like 99% attendance because that's the fun they're having and, and exploring what they get to do. I think last year when we did our concert uh, for last year's program, I think one of the best comments I got was, you know, hey, I had no idea the music would be this good. And this is coming from high school age composers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think that's super exciting. And I think a lot of the reason why, you know, a Karen Elaine and, and my, my team of like Amy Blythe, Kate and Jack, they are involved is because these kids are so passionate and so talented. And then also too, why are musicians coming in to mentor? These are the composers of of tomorrow that will hire them, you know, down, down the road. I think that's where we're at. And it's unfortunate that composition isn't taught more in schools. It should be. I mean, I think it's, there's an avenue of storytelling and we, we push that and activating your emotions and your creativity. And it's such a great way to do it. And, and I will say what I, I do love about this is that I also have two students or three students who are more beginning and, I, as a teacher, am super excited that just to see their progress in like six months, I started to work with them in, in March, right? So when I initially said start to improv, you'd see their hands float over the, the keyboard and they couldn't play because they didn't know. And now you can clearly tell that they're taught by me because I say, okay, improv today. And like one of my students, Cadence, she goes right to either the bottom end or the top end of the piano, nowhere in the middle, because I always <laughs> do like go out of the box, you know? When we met, there was one more piece of this puzzle, and I don't know if it's just not highlighted as much or if it has a different role, and that is that you were using virtual reality to be able to yes. capture some of these experiences to share them with others. Is that still in the dance, or is that found a n- different spot in the dance? The virtual reality piece is absolutely in the dance. Um, we had a great organization last year who came in and did our production ends, largely shooting in 360 Amy, our our VP, um, she found this fantastic organization called Virtuo, which is in Boston, I believe. They met through school back there. Uh, they happen to be producing a a music game uh, where you go in and you can conduct the orchestra and have this experience as a conductor. So we've had a great series of meetings uh, where we were able to pitch our idea of how do we incorporate um, the kids learning their composing their journeys, getting mentored on their pieces. So that's still a thing. And we are really, we're really working with them very, very well. We're super excited. 
maybe it's a little less animation that we had original than we had originally thought, but it's 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 there and a combination of both VR and then we're going to do some filming in studio with our individual mentors. We of course want to film our live concert as the last piece in the thing. So you go and you you see how the mentors work with the kids, and then you get to go to a a concert and hear it, hear this piece played live. But we also have this, you know, we're working out a VR backup just in case where we record people individually and cut that together. Hopefully it's the live thing. So some of this got started because you're hitting a birthday. You're being asked to think about what's next on the agenda in that time frame. So for your next big birthday, what do you want to have done by then? So the next big birthday is the 5-0. And I want to, I want to grow this very successfully. I want the I want the VRPs to be done. I want us to oh we the other thing that I didn't tell you is that we are actually expanding into world music because we decided to move our end date of this program from the end of January to May so that we have hopefully we can get back live. But that'll also mean that we have more time to bring in more mentors and do world music as well. I want this to really I want us to really work on the expansion nationally. I know you and I have talked about that before to get it out virtually to other cities. How do we do that? To, to activate more kids. That's always a, it's always a thing on my, every time I pitch is that how do we expand our cohort, expand our diversity, expand our reach. And I think we're doing a, a good job of that. Uh, we've definitely grown from last year, but I'd love to expand more. Akira, what have we not mentioned? We are at the end of our journey together. Anything that you want to comment on before we say goodbye? Well, I just want to thank you um, and all the other creative innovators that you have on your podcast. I think especially in a time of, you know, of COVID and lockdown, I think everybody, the amazing people who are pushing through, especially the ones who are inspiring kids to do something creative and to have hope. I think that is so amazing. And so I just want to say thank you for highlighting, for highlighting us and including the LA Inception Orchestra on this journey. So. I ask people at the end, who would you like to reach out to you? What do you need? What would you like? Who would you like to reach out? And then how would you like them to reach you? We're having a cool event on November 7th of November 7th. How would they, how would they reach out? So we're doing a really amazing event where we're having um, master classes all day. It's a virtual event. It's free. It's just showing the type of work we do. There's some panels so we'd love for you to go to our site. There'll be information on how to RSVP there, which is inceptionorchestra.org. You feel free to contact me directly, which is just my name at inceptionorchestra.org. Uh, um, but we'd your, love to your, see your there. Your first name. Your first name. Yes, my first name, Akira, A-K-I-R-A. Okay. It'll um, be in the show notes too. It'll be in the show notes too. <laughs> thank you. Okay. But we'd love to have we'd love to have any interested composers, of course. We're ready to bring you on, even if it's in the middle of program. Some a kid just joined a month ago and very successful, even though he, even though he just jumped in. Of course, any people interested in donating or supporting us, that would be amazing as well. Um, and also, music educators who might want to be mentors, we'd love to talk to you. Excellent. Thank you for joining us. And I'm excited to hear about what is your next adventure on this continuing platform shift when you're finding um, all sorts of great folks to play and come along this journey with you. Thanks for joining us. Shiji, thank you so much. 
So it's never too late to start a new adventure. You heard Akira's story about his different journey paths that led to the founding of the Inception Orchestra. Join in his adventures on November 7th. You'll hear me there as well moderating a session. Go to inceptionorchestra.org and find out more information. Find us at all of your favorite podcast places and share this episode with three friends. We would love to have more people find out about the work we're doing. Take this episode wherever you're hearing it and pass it along to other people. Thanks for joining us. Subscribe everywhere you listen and come find us at creativeinnovatorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening to Creative Innovators. We are expanding our footprint. So we invite you to go to creativeinnovatorspodcast.com and find us on Substack, where we are creating a new matrix of our past shows that you can find them more easily and find them along with the career adventure guide content, where you can take your own career and use some of the tools in the setup to both be inspired by past episodes of Creative Innovators, as well as become a bigger and better creative innovator yourself. We're also launching in a couple of other platforms this year. So stay tuned and join our lists and and find out where else you can find and combine with creative innovators in 2024.